Good morning, Redeemer. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are visiting today, welcome. It's wonderful to have you with us. This morning, um, it's a bittersweet morning because we are wrapping up our series in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this has been a series that has challenged our understanding of the Christian life, teaching us that how we live and relate to one another in this life is not inconsequential. In fact, how we live matters, and what we also learned is that who we are informs how we live. We've also been presented with an image of Jesus as the fulfillment of Moses, providing his people with a new law whereby we have been taught the true nature of righteousness as what scholar Jonathan Pennington refers to as whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. We've seen how the righteous person is the one who is being perfected in Christ and that how we live as cross-bearing followers of Jesus serves as a means of grace that draws us nearer and nearer to Christ. Jesus taught us that there is more to blessing or flourishing than meets the eye and that the ones who will inherit the kingdom of heaven are those marked by what conventional or worldly wisdom might consider folly or worthless. The Sermon on the Mount is a paradox. And in the words of Arthur Bennett, who compiled the collection of Puritan poems and prayers entitled The Valley of Vision, he says this, he says, let us learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. The good news of Jesus is the news of how God, high and lifted up, descended to earth, and took on human nature, was born of a virgin in what would have been considered a scandalous affair, who lived as the son of a carpenter from the backwoods town of Nazareth, and who died the death of a rebel and a traitor, which was the means by which he became king. And the Sermon on the Mount presents to us a path to blessing and flourishing that is a paradox, because we too, should we submit ourselves to Christ, we are being called to a life that should not, by all intents and purposes, lead anywhere, but in reality, it leads us into everlasting glory. That's where we've been, and where we're going this morning is that we're going to see how Jesus wraps up his sermon, how he basically gives us the choice. You could either follow my words, or you can go your own way, but there's consequences to our choices. So before we jump into the text, let me pray. And let's see what the Lord has for us this morning. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word and thank you for the good news of your son, Jesus, Lord. And I pray this morning, Father, that as we look into your word, Father, convict us of sin. Draw us nearer to yourself, Lord. Make us more and more like you, Father, that we might show the world just what you are like, Father. We love you and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you were given a bulletin when you came in, and there's a simple outline that we're going to follow that's on the right side of your bulletin, on the back of the bulletin of the community group questions for this week. We are in Matthew chapter 7, 
beginning in verse 13. If you're looking at one of those white pew Bibles, it's on page 474. Page 474. All right, so let's take a look at this first section, uh, verses 13 and 14, the narrow gate. It says this, it says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are, are few. So Jesus is picking up on an Old Testament pattern. When the law was given in the Old Testament, at the end it was, it was declared that you can either follow this way and you will be blessed, or you can go your own way and go after other gods, and you will be cursed. There's a blessing and curse motif that travels throughout the, the biblical text. And, and Deuteronomy 11 says it like this. It says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command to you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And I actually love what the text says there, to go after other gods. I don't love going after other gods, but I love what the text is getting at because when we choose to follow anything other than what Jesus has put in front of us, we are actually going after other gods. That's precisely what's happening. When we choose money, power, whatever the case may be, over the glory of the gospel, we're choosing another God. And, and while we might not have statues and idols in our own homes that we bow down and worship to, at least in the literal sense, whatever we're running after that takes us away from the mission of God, from the, the law of God, from the person and work of Jesus, is us running after other gods. So he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. And then he says that the narrow gate, the one that we want to enter in order to follow after Jesus, is one that's hard. It's difficult, and, and there's something about human nature. We don't like difficult things. And maybe some of you do who are like into CrossFit and what have you, love just kind of like torturing their body. Like, I don't. I mean, I do, that's not me, um, and maybe it ought to be a little bit, but, you know, we're, we're working on that. But anyway, neither here nor there. My point is that the difficult path is not the one that we often jump at. In fact, I was reminded that I was going through this text. I was reminded of a movie, um, Click, with Adam Sandler, if you've ever seen that movie. Um, I mean, it's somewhat questionable at some points, but there's an, um, it's an amazing story because what it's getting at, so, so Adam Sandler gets this remote control where he is able to fast forward through the difficult parts of his life or pause maybe the better parts of his life. And, and what's interesting is as you progress through that movie, as you get to the end, he fast forwarded basically through everything that mattered until he was left all alone. Now granted, he was, he was massively wealthy, but he lost his family. His kids didn't really like him all that much, and he was, and he was just kind of alone because he fast-forwarded through all the difficulty, through all the pain. He wasn't present in the difficulty, and the reality, if we understand the gospel message, it is the difficult things of life. It is the pain. It is the cross that actually leads to life, that leads to glory, and, and as you watch that movie, you realize that he is neglecting 
the narrow way. Why? Because it was difficult. Possibly it was a frustrating path, a boring path, whatever the case may be, that's the path that leads to life. Now, I, I don't want us to make the mistake, I'm not talking about some weird sort of like moralistic kind of thing. The path that leads to Jesus is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. And, and that way that we read about throughout the scriptures, that we unpack through the, through the story of the gospels, that Paul unpacks through his letters, is a way that is difficult. It's cross-bearing. It's the nature of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's what he's calling us to. As we look at this text, as he wraps up his sermon, as he concludes the, this, this message that he was preaching to his followers, he's saying, you could either listen to what I said, which will be difficult, which will be frustrating, which will be even confusing and borderline foolish at times, or you can go your own way and go after your own gods. All right, it reminds me of that passage in Joshua where it says, you know, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And, and I always, when I look back and I read that, it's really interesting. He's almost like, he's almost mocking his people. He's like, he's like yeah, if you, if you think, Joshua's talking, he's like, if you think it's evil to serve God, okay, go ahead, then go serve your gods. Go ahead and do your thing. But as for me and my house, we're going we're gonna to follow Jesus. Now, he doesn't say Jesus in, in the Joshua narrative, but the point is, is that they're going to follow God. We have to decide whom are we going to follow, which path are we going to traverse, and which gate are we going to walk through. And it has to be the one that Jesus is putting forth in the Sermon on the Mount. It has to be, or else we are headed towards destruction. The wide gate, the easy gate, the wide path is one that leads to destruction. It leads to destruction. And that needs to sit with us as we consider our lives, even thinking about this Advent series that we're heading into, where we're going to talk about our treasure. What is your treasure? What is most valuable to you? Because whatever it is that we value most, that's what we're going to live for. That's where we're going to put all of our chips. And Jesus is saying, I need to be that thing. I need to be that thing. And that is a paradox, right? Because as we traveled through the Sermon on the Mount, we were, con we were confronted with some pretty strange things, that, that the people who were poor in spirit, those who were mourning, those are the ones that Jesus considered as blessed. We were taught that when confronted with an enemy, that we were to love that enemy. We were taught that when struck on one cheek, we were to offer the other cheek. We were taught some, some massively strange things that don't really flow with our common sense or conventional wisdom. And that's why when he says, my way is the only way, it, it, it presents something that's, that's, that's difficult. But it is the way. It is the way. He goes on in his text, uh, in the text here, um, in our second point, mighty, the mighty works of wolves. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't know if anyone would agree, but that's one of the most frightening passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. That there are going to be people on the last day that cry out, Lord, Lord, and Jesus is going to reply, I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. Why are you, why are you reaching out to me? I don't, know, I don't know you. That's terrifying. As I, as I read through this, the thing that popped out in this particular passage is, is the emphasis on, on the teachers of the people of God. Right? He says, beware of false prophets. And, and, and this is a category that he's been kind of working with throughout the course of the Sermon on the Mount, right? He's been, he's been kind of getting at the, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of his day. He's, he's been subverting their religion. Remember that really awesome sermon title that I put out that, that Eric made fun of me for? Um, he's subverting the religious leaders. And here he's doing it again. He's saying, beware of the false prophet." prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves in fact there's two sections here right there are those who are the false prophets who are the deceitful and then there's this other group in verses 21 through 23 who are actually the deceived like there's two groups here but both of them are not in the kingdom they're both on the outside one for malicious reasons and one for ignorance but before we even get there i want to talk about this this idea of prophet what is a prophet well, a prophet is anyone who speaks to the people of God on behalf of God. Anyone who speaks to the people of God on behalf of God. So a false prophet is someone who claims to speak on behalf of God, but are actually misrepresenting him. It's someone who claims to speak on behalf of God, but is actually misrepresenting him. So the first group of people, the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, these are those who are actually trying to deceive the people of God. They're trying. They're standing by the gate. They're standing by the narrow way. And they're saying, no, 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 why don't you come over here? Here's the easy path. Let me show you a better way. If anyone has read Pilgrim's Progress, there's a few of these people who pop up in that story. But these are people who are intentionally trying to deceive God's people so that they will not follow Jesus. I don't know if I've met anyone in this room who is like that, although we wouldn't know because they're dressed in sheep's clothing. And the warning given here is if that's you, like, woe to you if that is you. If you are intentionally trying to throw God's people off course, like, that's not a place you want to you wanna even dabble in. Because God's not playing when it comes to his kids. Like, he's not playing around. Those are the people that we will eventually recognize by their fruits. It says, our grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
It's something, like there's that passage in scripture where it says that your sin will find you out. There's nothing kept hidden that will remain hidden. That eventually, everyone who is a false prophet, eventually, whether it's in this life or it's at the judgment seat, that will come to light and, and they will be exposed for who they truly are. And that's, the, that's terrifying if that's someone in this room and you're sitting in that, in that position. But the beauty is that there's grace, that if that is you, there is room for repentance because the grace of God is massive and there is forgiveness in Christ. We need to recognize that. We need to know that we can go to God and ask him for forgiveness. He is actually waiting for us to come to him. But then there's this second group of people in verses 21 and following. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many things? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. These are those who are deceived. These are the ones who are smitten more so with the gifts of God rather than the giver himself. Yes, they do mighty works and they do them in the name of Jesus Christ himself, but they do not have a heart for God. And that's scary because there are people, and this is, I'm reading this passage and I'm sitting here and I'm like, I'm like, this is overwhelming because I know every Sunday morning I get up and I practice my gift in front of people. Like, that's what I do. I, I, I believe, I hope, God gifted me with the ability to teach. And, and the fact that I do that on a Sunday morning and, I, and I'm reading this passage and I start trembling. I'm like, why am I doing this? Why am I getting up every Sunday morning? Do I genuinely want to proclaim the gospel and see people follow Jesus into eternity? Or am I trying to puff myself up? And to be honest, there are probably times where it's a little bit of both. Because humanity is, is one who still struggles with sin, right? Though I might be in Christ, I still speak with the accent of a sinner. So I need to be called out on those things. I need to be reminded. And my wife does a great job. She's constantly like, yeah, well, you, you, were, like, you were a little this, that on that Sunday. I'm like, oh, cool, thanks, babe. Um, appreciate it. She's, the, she's my most honest critic, and I, and I really appreciate it. Um, Bible commentator Scott McKnight says it like this, what have you done for others today besides exercising your gift? What have you done for others today besides exercising your gift? And what is the will of God, right? It says that the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is the will of God? I mean, I think it comes down to the, the basic commandment that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul, and we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Like, that is, that's his will. That's his will, that we would worship and glorify and love God Almighty with all of our hearts, with every single ounce of our being, and that likewise we would serve our neighbor and love our neighbor in such a way that they catch a glimpse of what God is like. Right? When we talk about at Redeemer that we exist to share in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor, that's what we mean. That in order to share in the life of Christ, we need to be about the, the life of Christ. That means we love our Father who is in heaven and we serve the needs of those around us to our own hurt. We serve the needs of those around us. And this, this coming Advent season, we're going to have opportunities to do just that. This opportunity that Gregory is, is putting out there that, that um, at um, Grace and Peace is an opportunity to love and serve others who might not have what we have, but we need to remember as we go into those situations that they are the blessed ones. 
Remember the Beatitudes, right? We can't go into these situations, whether it's a soup kitchen, whether it's giving clothing or, or whatever to the poor, or sitting down and having a meal with those who are disenfranchised. They're the ones who Jesus, in the Beatitudes, he calls them the blessed ones. And we need to kneel at their feet and receive from them because they're the ones who Jesus calls blessed. Those are the ones who are becoming more and more human because the truly human one, Jesus Christ, the one born of a virgin, how did he become human? He became human by dying. By dying. He was the one who didn't have anywhere to rest his head. He was the one who was homeless. He was the one who was born of probably like a 15 or 16-year-old girl who wasn't married yet and was probably considered somewhat of a promiscuous girl. He is the blessed one. And the blessed ones are those who follow after him in his footsteps. On this side of glory. God's calling us to enormous things, Redeemer. Enormous things, but those enormous things are simple acts of love. Simple acts of service. I'm too often, when I was younger and trying to understand this idea of following Jesus, I was, I was into the idea of like becoming this big movement, this big event that, that many might come. And of course, we want many to come and hear the words of Jesus. But Paul says this interesting thing in one of his letters. He says, make it your ambition to live a quiet and peaceful life. A quiet life. Make it your ambition to live a quiet life. Like, that's a paradox in and of itself, right? Because when we think of this idea of ambition, we think of this idea of working towards some massive goal. And what Paul is saying is like, like, I want you to give everything you got towards living a quiet life. And a quiet life is one that just, as we go, we are loving those around us. We are caring for the needs of the broken. We are submitting to one another in love. And we are caring and, and coming alongside the broken. And we're doing it in the name of the resurrected King Jesus. This is the calling of the Sermon on the Mount. We talked a lot about the intricacies and the nuances of the text. But at the end of the day, it's a simple call. Love God and neighbor or go worship other gods. Pick. There's two paths. There's two trees. There's two builders that we'll get to in just a minute. And we have a choice. We could either follow the one path or we could follow the other path. It's massively important that we wrap our minds around the simplicity of this message, even though it's structured in a nuanced and detailed way, it's a simple calling that God gives his people. It's a simple calling. And we can only do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way we can do it. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that what God calls us to, he empowers us to. It's the beauty of being a follower of Jesus. He goes on to this last section of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm getting emotional now because we're finishing up the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in this text for a while now, and it's been challenging as a, as a staff and as an elder team. We've been reading through it. We've been challenging one another. I'm, I'm, this week, I'm going to put all those books back on the shelf, and I'm not going to have to look at them for a while, and it's sad. But it's been a wonderful time. But he says this in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, 
and beat on it on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does them and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The Sermon on the Mount ends in judgment, which is really interesting. It ends in a warning or a judgment. We have two builders. Two builders. Both builders hear the word of God, right? They both hear, but only one does Jesus' words. It's important that we understand this idea of storm and flood and waters building up. A lot of times people might interpret this text and say, the storms of life, right? Like as difficulty comes in life, like how do we as followers of Jesus handle that? And, and there's truth to that in the, in the grander scheme of looking at the scriptures. But what this text is getting at, I think a better understanding is more so that we should be understanding that the floods and the rains and the waters coming down are actually biblical themes of judgment. Remember Noah and the flood. That was a, that was a, that was a judgment upon the earth. Judgment is coming, and we are either on firm ground or sinking sand. Regardless of where we are, judgment is coming. It is going to happen. And it might happen upon someone's death, or it might happen at the end of the age. But either way, everyone will stand before God to be judged. And the question that is being posed to us is, where are you standing in the midst of that judgment? Are you standing on the sinking sand of worldly wisdom and conventional wisdom? Or are you standing on the rock that is Christ? His teachings, his work, him. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Where are you? Where are we? I think we need to wrestle with this question individually. And I think we need to wrestle with this question as a church. Where do we stand? What are we willing to put ourselves out there for? God is calling individuals to obedience, but he's calling us as a body to obedience. That's what we're trying to work through as we redevelop the website, as we restructure, and, and, and as we have this family meal, and we start to talk about the family meeting today, and we talk about what's coming down the pike. We want to be a community of faith that stands on the rock that is Jesus. That's what we want to be. That's what we pray for as elders of this church. That's what we care most deeply about. We want to be a people on mission for the good and glory of God. That needs to be our motivation. But then the question as I'm reading through this, this text, and honestly the question that probably has been hounding all of us as we've read through this entire sermon, I thought we were saved by grace through faith. I thought we were saved by grace through faith. I'm confused. It seems like there's a lot of things that we got to do. I want you to flip with me if you, if you want. You can just listen if you don't want to flip there. But James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 14 and following. I'll read it aloud. 19 and following, excuse me. James chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted words, which is able to save your souls. But 
Be doers of the word, and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of a word, the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. It's like if you went in the mirror, you stare at yourself, and you have like, I don't know, like say you just had like ribs or something, and there's like, like barbecue salt over your face, and you kind of look at yourself and be like, yeah, you look good, and you go out and like, like go to a wedding or something like that, right? Like it's that kind of thing. Um, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone, there, this will stop there. He will be blessed in his doing. James 2, 14, this is a theme in James. He goes like this, uh, verse 14, chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. For brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was filled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see, and this is one of the most perplexing verses in the Bible, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was justified not also Rahab the prostitute justified by, his, by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also, so also faith apart from works is dead. What James is getting at, he's summing up the teachings of Jesus, basically, and saying, yes, of course, believe in Jesus. Believe in him, put your faith in him, but that faith is a faith that moves. It's a faith that acts upon what it says it believes. I think of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. If you've seen that movie, if you haven't, you should see that movie. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, at the end of the movie, when they're about to find the Holy Grail, Jesus' cup, there's this scene where he stands before this huge canyon. And it's just, he's sitting there, he's like, okay, now what? What am I supposed to do now? There's this huge canyon, I can't jump. If I jump, I will certainly fall to my death. There's no way to get across this thing. And he remembers his father's little notebook. And it talks about this idea of the leap of faith. I believe that was the phrase, leap of faith. Andrew's giving me a yes. And so what does he do? That famous, that famous scene where he goes like, and he steps, and there's a bridge there. It's an invisible bridge, but it's a bridge. And, and the idea is that as I'm sitting there thinking about that particular scene in Indiana Jones, like, that's faith. You need to step. You need to actually put into practice what we say we believe. Faith is, is not an intellectual assent to the, to, to the things of God. It, it can't, it's, it's at least that, but if it's just that, it's no faith at all. Faith acts upon the truth of God. Faith acts upon the beauty and wonder of Jesus. Faith acts upon the truth that Jesus is king, not Caesar. That Jesus is king, not Caesar. Faith acts upon it. And we step, and we step, 
and we move forward and we move forward and sometimes we trip and fall but we come alongside one another and we lift each other up and we continue moving forward because faith without works is dead. Herman Bobbin, a Dutch reformed theologian from the late 1800s, he says it like this. He says, faith cannot stop at the forgiveness of sins but reaches out to the perfection that is in Christ, seeks to confirm itself from works as from its own fruits, girds itself with courage and power, not only to live in communion with Christ, but also to fight under him as king against sin, the world, and the flesh, and to make all things serviceable to the honor of God's name. Faith reaches out to the perfection that is in Christ. Faith pushes us to move. Faith pushes us to act. And the question that Matthew is getting at, that Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, you either believe this or you don't. And if you do, we will know because your life will be radically transformed. Nothing will ever be the same. And what faith means is that not only are we acting and moving forward and, and serving God and loving others, but it means that we are open to correction and teaching, that we're teachable, right? There's so much involved as we follow Jesus. We want to continue being sanctified by his grace. And that requires that we continue to follow him. And the Sermon on the Mount presents us with two paths, two gates, Two options. We can either base our life on the authority of Jesus and his work and his person, or we can follow after other gods. Those are our options. This is what Jesus lays out before us. This is what Jesus lays out to us as a body. What are we going to do? How are we going to live out what we've learned over the past however many weeks since September? September? How are we going to live this out? Because the Sermon on the Mount was not intended to just be studied and learned and understood. It was intended to be lived. It was intended to be followed. And God is calling Redeemer to something bigger than itself. It's an exciting time at Redeemer Fellowship. Like the parking lot's full. I think Eric said that the outer rim, and not the Star Wars reference, but the outer rim is being utilized in the parking lot. Like, it's exciting. God's entrusting us with something. And now, as he entrusts us with something, do we have the courage and the faith to step out and do something with what he's entrusting us with? He's calling us to something big here. And it's exciting to be a part of. And what he's calling us is that we might share in his life as we love him and we love others. That's what he's calling us to. The, the, the text ends with this short little passage here in verse 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The Sermon on the Mount was delivered by one who had authority. And if we take this authority seriously then we will not only hear these words, but we will do them. We share in the life of Christ only when we love God and love neighbor. 
to share in the life of Christ only when we love God and love neighbor. The sermon calls us to a life that is postured toward both God and toward others. And if we are choosing another path, perhaps one that is easier and demands less, then we are choosing a path of destruction. I mean, that's what Jesus says. He says it plainly. Much like the old covenant, the new covenant presents both blessing and curse. Blessing for those who build their lives upon the person, work, and teachings of Jesus, and cursing for those who choose the easy path. As we come to the table this morning, we need to consider that choice that is before us. As I said, we need to consider it as individuals. We need to consider it in the context of our community groups. We need to consider it as, as youth leaders in the youth group. We need to consider it in Redeemer Kids. We need to consider it as an entire body. Our deacons need to consider it. All of our ministry leaders need to consider these words. The elders need to consider these words. We all, in every single facet of Redeemer Fellowship's life, we need to consider the words of Jesus. Are we going to trust his authority or are we going to run after other gods? To whom will we offer our allegiance to? To whom or what will we bend our knee? Faith as I said, is not mere intellectual assent, but it is a complete reorientation of who we are. It is a process that takes time, and all of us are in different places of our sanctification, but Redeemer, we must allow ourselves to be changed. We must be open to the challenges of Jesus' words. He is one who spoke with authority, and in the words of the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my son, listen to him. This is my son, Listen to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the beauty of this sermon that you preached to your people some 2,000 years ago, Father. And I pray that as we consider these things, Father, that we would be drawn nearer to you and that Redeemer Fellowship as a body would be a body who is on mission for the sake of your glory, your kingdom, and your name. Father, teach us. Continue to teach us. Continue to to reorient our lives, Father. And as we enter into this Advent season, Father, I pray that you would, you would challenge us as to what truly is our treasure. How do we respond to your coming, Father? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Redeemer Fellowship, communion is an ancient meal that Christians have practiced for over 2,000 years. Commemorate